0: We're going to uh, read God's word, and Hannah's going to give it to us in Spanish first, I'm assuming, okay. and then English, or whichever order you had. So. Genesis 22, versículos
1: 1 hasta 4. Aconteció después de esas cosas que probó Dios a Abraham, y le dijo, Abraham. Y él respondió, eme aquí. Y dijo, toma ahora tu hijo, tu único, Isaac, a quien Ima- amas. Y vete a tierra de Moraya y ofrécelo allí en holocausto sobre uno de los montes que yo te diré. Y Abraham se levantó muy de mañana y en el bardo su asno y tomó consigo dos siervos suyos y a Isaac su hijo. Y cortó leña para el holocausto y se levantó y fue al lugar que Dios le dijo. Al tercer día alzó Abraham sus ojos y vio el lugar de lejos. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar.
0: Somebody give God praise for his word. (laughs) Father, in this hour and in this moment, we submit ourselves to the authority of scripture. We pray that it will pierce our hearts and that it will cut away things that need to be cut away, that we may look more like Jesus. God, I pray for those who have yet to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in this room. God, that you would move in such a way that it would be impossible for their hearts to leave the same way. Would you arrest their hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Shine your light in them and cause them to be drawn to the Savior of the world. We pray that you would do this, not because of us, but mainly because of your glory and for the sake of your name. It is in your name that we pray. And the church said Pastor Charlie Dates reminded me of a historical truth. On November 7th, 1935, the Royal National Institute for the Blind accomplished something that changed the world. Britain's visually paired community, some of who had grown up with eyesight sufficient enough to read literary classics, had later on become blind. Nevertheless they held out hope that someday they would be able to see again to read again new works of literary perfection the challenge of course as new books emerge is that they is that they could not see therefore they could not read recently literary works of perfection was not available with braille simply unavailable to them because they could not see. After hearing of the 1926 release of the murder of Roger Ackward by Agatha Christie, a visually impaired citizen made a strange plea to the Royal National Institute for the Blind. It came in the fashion of a question. She asked, can you make the book talk? Believe it or not, they accomplished just that with the new advent of the gramophone. They took that book and put it on LPs. Now, I know some of y'all probably don't know what LPs are, but that's all right. That's what Google's for. They accomplished what had never been done before. They made the book talk. Friends, this question took me back down memory lane and sent my mind running to a place in history with my children, there has been two questions about God that my two oldest children have asked, and I expect and anticipate Lila, the one who swung on me uh, last week, I told y'all about, took that swing at me, two-year-old Lila. Lila, yeah, yeah, I got into a fight with a two-year-old, I lost too. yeah, yeah. She's sweet as she wanna be, but she swung at her daddy. But I expect Lila's two-year-old brain, as it continues to develop, to ask the same question. After being frustrated with my answer to my first two children to their first question, "Daddy, why can't we see God?" I didn't gotta ask such hard questions. <laughs> answer: Because He's invisible. And it was followed with this question, "Daddy." Can God talk? I believe they asked me this question because my children were determined. Well, if I can't see God, I need to at least talk to God. Maybe you ain't never been in that place because you've grown. God, if I can't see you, you're going to at least have to say something to me. Because if they can talk to him, it may prove to their souls that he's real. I better warn you, all I feel like preaching this morning. My answer was, yes, God can talk. I'm so thankful. Let me pause here parenthetically. I'm so thankful that we serve a speaking God. I'm so glad that we serve a God that talks to us. We don't serve a God that's silent. We don't serve a God that's created, but we serve a God that speaks. And not only does he speak, if you know the Bible like I know it, he spoke the world into existence. And when he speaks, things happen. Yes, sweetie. Yes, son. God talks. But he mainly talks to us through the Bible. The looks on their faces gave the impression that they were disappointed with that answer. But they rested their inquiring minds. But I have come to see the biggest way to help your children believe in a God they can't see and that he really speaks through a book they can see is to see parents who live like they are hearing from a God in a book they do read. I better say that one more time because that flew past some of y'all. I have come to see the biggest way to help your children believe in a God that they can't see and that he really speaks through a book that they can see. is to see parents who live like they are hearing from a God in a book that they do read. Children need to see parents that live like the word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. They need to see God uh, visible in their parents. Kids just don't need abstract theology. They need an existential reality concrete before them embodied in their parents. Parents, in other words, do you make the book talk? Family, when Jesus was getting ready for his departure and ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, and when he ascended, he didn't take no airplane. no one Southwest Airlines or anything like that. He just ascended because he's God. He ascended at the right hand of the Father. He left his disciples with this glorious command. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I thought you were shout right there. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It is God's desire that we go and reach the world with the gospel. It is God's desire that we go and reach the world with the gospel. The same gospel that has saved us and to teach them to walk in obedience to the gospel. Jesus also promised us this. Check this out. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power. And you will be my witnesses. He didn't say you might be my witnesses. You may be my witnesses. But if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, God promises that you will be his witnesses. Well, imagine that. Little old you and me promise to change the world with the gospel. And I think that's praiseworthy. But family... God has not only called us to reach the world, but more importantly, to reach our own living room. As parents, our first mission field is our children. And if you're single without children, you are part of this church family. And God has called you, not at the same accountability, but to help raise these children as well. This in some way applies to all of us. It is easier for us to go and make disciples in Judea and Samaria than in our own living room. God has called us to instruct and raise our children in the way of the Lord. Let me give you the word. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith in his worse than an unbeliever. Let me translate that for you. If you don't take care of people with your last name, God says that you're worse than an unbeliever. This verse here carries the heart of God for our household. What does it profit a parent to evangelize the world and neglect their children? (laughs) Parents, if you want your children to be hungry and thirsty for the bread of life and living water, they need to see you hunger and thirst for God in such a way that they realize they're not the most important being in the home, but God is. I better say that one one more time. They're not the most important being in the household, but God is. Parents that make God the most important are those who make the book talk. I want to turn your attention to Father Abraham to help illustrate my point this morning. Any of you may be saying, who, who's Abraham? Well, many of us know who Abraham is. Father Abraham had many, many sons, had father. That man had a lot of kids. He wasn't playing, was he? Father Abraham. Abraham was the man that God promised uh, from him would come a great nation. He got a direct promise. And here's the problem with the promise that God gave him initially. Uh, Abraham became old and had no direct descendants. It's hard to father a nation if you don't have at least one child to father. Abraham was 100 before God fulfills his promise. Imagine that, having a kid at 100 years old. Oh, God, don't give me no kids at no 100. I'm barely keeping up with the ones I got, and I'm 30. My knees wouldn't be able to take it at 100 years old. And can you imagine Sarah when she heard it? Because she was about 90 herself. Oh what? <laughs> Boy, if they was able to tattoos back then, Sarah would have ran to the hospital. But when God said you're going to have a child, it don't matter what you tie and what you block. If He wants that child to come, it's coming whether you like it or not. Ooh, y'all clapping, but she wasn't. <laughs> I know I wouldn't have been clapping. And they named their precious new son Isaac. We pick up the story. When Isaac is 13 years old, so 13 years later, Abraham was tested in Genesis 22:1 1 through 2. Check it out. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Imagine the look on Abraham's face. You want me to do what, God? You want me to take my son up to a mountain and sacrifice him? At that point, I'd have had to say, God, I I don't know if you got this right. Abraham gets news that God wants him to take his son and sacrifice him. But Abraham is not who I'm worried about. I wonder if he told his wife. Can you imagine, ladies, if your husband came up to you and said, hey, I've been praying to God and God has told me that I need to take our firstborn up to the mountain and sacrifice him. All hell will break loose in that household. He will be sacrificed before he sacrificed the kid. Amen. Since when did God require child Sacrifice. And not just any child, the child of promise. The writer makes it clear this was a test, not a child sacrifice, which God was very much against. And although in Abraham's day, child sacrifice was a normality, this is something that they did. But friends, let me park here really fast because we sacrifice our kids in other ways. We may sacrifice them for our work. We may sacrifice them for our entertainment. Oftentimes, we sacrifice our kids for other things. Rather, makes it clear. God was not asking for child sacrifice, but he was testing Abraham. But here's the thing that gets me. Isn't it crazy when God wants to test your heart, when God wants to test your desire? He doesn't test priority seven, eight or nine. He tests priority number two. He, prior, he, he, he tests his priority, number one. God has a way of testing us with the things that we love the most. Oh, you ain't never have. God say, give it to me. But God, I just, I just got the job. I just got the job. Give me the job. Give me the car. Mm-hmm. Give me the family. Oh, you don't believe God do that? Let me, Joe, come here, help me out. Though he slay me, yet shall I praise him. And we shout on that verse. But you got to remember that his whole family was taken out in one day. You ever had your house taken, your cattle taken, you had everything taken, and one day God will take things from you and not give you an explanation to why He does it. Oh, we serve a God that when He when He wants to test us, sometimes He tests the thing that is so dear to us. And friends, when you're in that situation. You wrestle with being angry with God and trusting God. God, how could you? But I know that you're God. You ain't never been in that dilemma when you were torn between God and the things of the world. God was pulling one way and the thing was pulling the other way. But Jesus says, if anyone follows me, he must pick up their cross and follow me. God was testing the genuineness and depth of his love for the one true God. This test came to Abraham because God wanted his heart. Friends, God doesn't want your church attendance. God doesn't want your tithes. God doesn't want your time. God doesn't want your house. He don't need none of that. God wants your heart. And if he ain't got your heart, he don't want nothing else. I came to find out that it doesn't matter what you give God. If you never give him his heart, your heart. And here's the problem. Many of us get into church, but we never get close to God. We get into church, but we never get into God. We'll give God everything but our hearts. We'll give God everything but our lives. He's told to go to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is around 45 miles away. It's a three-day walk. And the only thing that I can imagine is, Abraham, what are you thinking in this three-day journey? God has come to you and told you to give up your son. You've waited 100 years for this boy, and now God wants to take him away. We pick up in Genesis 22, verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. We see Abraham is resolved to obey the fact that, to, to obey God, that he got up early in the morning. He didn't waste no time. He didn't scramble no eggs. He didn't make no bacon. He got to it. Abraham was prepared for his test. Many of us, we would have been mumbling and jumbling and doing all kinds of things. You know how we are when it comes to being obedient to God. God, I'm going to get to it eventually. I just got a couple more things I got to do. Let me get this together. Let me fix that. And then eventually I'll get to it. And what happens? You never get to it. You wake up the next morning and you say, I'll do it this time. He said, here I am. Abraham said indicating that he was ready to submit to the will of God for his life. But I'm sure he was not rejoicing because he was in a place where he was resolved to be obedient to God, but he was still nervous. Friends, to be nervous doesn't mean that you don't trust in God. It means that you're a human man. You ever walked in obedience and pain at the same time? You ever walked in something, but although it hurt you, you kept on walking? You ever kept on pressing when it hurts? Sometimes God will call you to press even when it hurts, even even when it doesn't feel good, even when it doesn't feel comfortable. And oftentimes, we want a Christianity that will protect our comfort. But God is not mainly concerned about your comfort more than he's concerned about his glory. And a lot of us, we see, we want to go to church. And we want to hear preachers that will tell us that this year is your best life yet. Oh, I got a word for you this year. And I can do the same thing, but I have resolved. If Jesus can't keep them, nothing can keep them. And so I'm just going to preach the gospel. And if the gospel can't keep you, nothing in the world going to keep you. Uh, God wasn't concerned about Abraham's comfort. God was concerned about his glory. God doesn't put you first. He put himself first. And Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Well, isn't that selfish of God? Well, let me tell you. If God was to put anybody else before him, he would be breaking the first commandment, putting other gods before himself. God has no choice but to put himself first. And it is to your good that he does. What was Abraham thinking this whole way? You know what Abraham was thinking in the midst of his pain, in the midst of trying to be obedient to God? I believe that he kept remembering the promises of God. Through Isaac, here's the promise, through Isaac will you have descendants. Through Isaac will you have descendants. sometimes friends, when it comes to being obedient to God, sometimes all you have is this promise. Sometimes all God gives you is his word. And I don't know about you, but his word is good enough. His resume is good with me. Each step to up that mountain, Abraham kept reminding himself over and over and over and over and over again that God, you promised that Isaac, through Isaac, you will make a nation. But I'm in a dilemma because you say he'll come. The nation will come through Isaac, but you're telling me to kill him. Verse 11, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 says, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. (laughs) Oh, you didn't get excited. You didn't catch that, did you? Let me say that one more time. Abraham considered that even if I kill the boy, I serve a God that can raise him from the dead. We're so used to hearing it, right, that God raises the dead. But what it would happen if it really sunk down into our hearts that he raises the dead. There's nothing that I cannot face. There's nothing that I need to be scared of because my God raises the dead. If y'all felt it like I felt it? It'll be hard for you to sit there, but I'm going to say it one more time, church. I said that we serve a God that raises the dead. Ain't no God like him. Y'all don't mind if I preach it how I feel it this morning. Abraham thought, okay, God said they're going to use this boy for a nation. Well, God, if you want me to kill him, there ain't no way that he could be a nation. But no, Abraham didn't think that. Abraham said, "The God that I serve, if I kill him, I know he got the power to raise him." And because I know he got the power to raise him, come on, Isaac, let's go on, on up this mountain. And they arrived at the axen altar in verse 6 of chapter 22. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took it in his hand and the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, this right here is kind of funny to me. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? I ain't mad at him, right? I'm checking out the scene, right? Okay, let's go. Let's go there, right? Let's go there together, right? Put yourself in the scene. Okay, pops. Okay, okay. We got the wood. Okay, check. Cool, 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 cool. Got the woody wood. Don't need that. Don't need that for fire. Okay, we got. Okay, we got the stuff to make the fire cool, cool. Uh, uh, Pops, uh, 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 we, uh, we need to go back to the crib. We didn't left the uh, burnt offering. We didn't, we didn't left the uh, sacrifice. What, what, what's going on there? I know you're 100 years old, and I know your memory doesn't serve you as well. So where is, where is, where is the burnt offering? I mean, I mean if I'm Isaac, that's what I'm asking, right? <laughs> hey, Pops. But here's something that I learned. Isaac teaches us something. Isaac, how you know about offering? How you know about sacrifice? What, where you get that from? A parent has been worshiping in front of his son. That's why Isaac knows how the routine goes. He knows how to worship God because he's seen his daddy worshiping God. I remember when I woke up in the morning and I see my daddy down on his knees praying to God and it spoke something to me when I got older that you can't live this life apart from God's help. Isaac seen his father worshiping God. And I believe many of our young people would we'll stop searching for God's voice in painful places like substance abuse and popularity if their parents will live out what it is to worship God. Amen. Amen. Parents, what your children need from you is not another iPad. They don't need to be put in another sport. What they need from you is to see you worshiping God. That's what your kids need from you. Oh they need to be in another sport Oh they need another iPad when the last time my iPad got out of the grave when the last time the iPad saved somebody they need Jesus at the end of the day and we need to switch our priorities around and quit putting God in church at the end of the list and putting everything else before them. What does it profit your kid if they graduate if they make it to the NBA? What does it profit your kid if they get a thousand degrees in their souls? Go to hell. I don't know about you, and I don't do this perfectly, but I'm praying that for my babies, not that they make it in regards to business, not that they make it in regards to college, and believe me, I want those things just like the next parent. But my foundational prayer, and I'll be content with this, that if you save them, I'll be all right with that. If you save them, I don't care what you got to do. Don't leave their hearts hard towards you. I don't care what you got to do. Move heaven, move earth, do whatever you got to do. God save my babies. I've seen it at work in ministry, through the Epic Ministry, and um, many of these guys are friends of mine. I consider them. And uh, Walt, he's in the back, got a chance to go to his his baby birthday party. Warren got mad at me. He said I ain't show up at his, and we almost fought at the birthday party, but it's all good. But anyways, <laughs> but here's the reality is that oftentimes they would ask me, how do we know this book is real? And I believe that through authentic relationship, authentic loving, will, Keith, all the men that show up night after night pouring into young men, you know what we were doing? We were making the book talk. We're giving it flesh and bones. Don't nobody care about your theological, uh, theoretical, abstract knowledge. If you ain't going to cry with them, yeah. if you ain't going to weep with me, yeah. if you ain't going to walk with me, you ain't nothing but a cold-hearted Pharisee. Yeah. Now, that kind of rhymed a little bit. I will do, do something with that. I do something with that. I didn't see that. Wow, look at God. <laughs> but what did Isaac realize? He realized how much his father loved him. I'm sorry. He realized how much his father loved God. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. While Isaac is called a boy, he is likely in his mid-teens. Abraham is well over 100 years old. We get a glimpse into their relationship, and Abraham had to explain to Isaac why he was doing what he was doing. Imagine the conversation. Isaac, you know I love you. You know how special you are to me and your mom. But God has told me that I must sacrifice you on this altar. Now, I'm going to be real. If my daddy would try that with me, we I'm sorry. You know, me, me, me and my daddy, we would have been, we, we been going to blows. You were not about to sit here and kill me, daddy. <laughs> but here's what Abraham says. As much as I love you, son, I love God more. At, Isaac, at, at Isaac's youth, in Abraham's age, Isaac could have easily overturned and outfought his dad. But he didn't do that. There's no record that Isaac in any way resisted his father. Why? He believed in God like his father did. Yes. Now, parents, I'm not giving you a guarantee that your children will believe in God. But it is certainly harder not to when you see such faith in your It's harder to turn away from the gospel when you see your daddy praying and your mama praying. It's hard to turn away from the gospel when you see a sacrificial love in the life of your parents. Isaac could have ran away from that altar. He could have pushed his dad away, but he, but he stays still. Then verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Friends, Abraham meant business. Now, Isaac learned a lot of things. I'll tell you one thing he learned. Don't mess with his daddy, that's for sure. When his daddy picked that knife up, he's like, I ain't going to ever try my daddy because my daddy is crazy. (laughs) But Abraham meant business. He picked up the knife to slay his son. I bet Isaac never tried his daddy after that day for sure. No doubt with tears streaming down his face. You ever cried in obedience to God? Tears streaming down your face. God, I don't know what you're doing. God, I don't understand this situation. But far be it from me to trust in myself than to not trust in you. I read somewhere, lean not on to your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge God. Sometimes you got to trust him when you can't trace him. tears streaming down his face. How difficult it must have been to slaughter a son whom you love. But he said, God over son. Whoever loves father or mother or brother or sister is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If you want your children to even begin to believe in the cross, they must see you carrying a cross first. The first cross that your children should ever see is the cross that you carry daily. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. I like to kind of hear like, hey, (laughs) yo, hold up. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. And seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham had passed the test. God wasn't watching the knife. He was watching his heart. And oftentimes... God's not watching your car. God's not watching your house. God ain't watching your job. Friends, God is watching your heart. And you know who's else watching your heart? Your kids are watching your heart. Oh, you can't fake things with kids. Kids will tell on you. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, Yeah, kids will tell on you. Try to get around the pastor, get around church people, and try to play all holy, and they say, Daddy, who are you? Mama, who are you? I did know you had such holiness in you, mama. ain't <laughs> what you were saying to me last night, mama. I remember, man. I remember what you said, mama. It was. amen. man, I thought you were speaking in KJV, mama. <laughs> Daddy, kids will tell on you. Let's bow our heads and pray for the food while the guest's over. We ain't never prayed before for a meal. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we try to fake it till we make it. And we'll use our kids as a little pawns to, to make us look good, to make us look holy. But kids, they got a way of sensing authenticity. You want to know where you are spiritually? Go and have a conversation with your little ones. And they'll give you a reading where you are. What did Isaac learn? There are many faith lessons in this story and many pictures of life of Christ as well. But I want to ask one very important question. What did Isaac learn? Getting up early, the three-day journey, the explanation by the altar, the tears on his face. What did Isaac learn as he looked up at the blade of that night knife? Isaac learned that the number one priority in his dad's life was God. All his life, Isaac heard the stories of how special he was and how he was the promised child. And if anyone was to be spoiled, it would have been Isaac. They waited a 100 years for him. And in that moment, in that hour, Isaac realized that I am not the center of my daddy's universe. God is. On that mountain, as he looked up at the blade, Isaac realized And he was not the center of his daddy's universe. God Almighty was number one in his dad's life. This is not rocket science. What we champion most will tell our children what we love the most. What we champion most will convey to our children what we love the most. And most of the time, what parents love the most is what children love the most. Y'all remember the Jackson 5? I know y'all in church, but y'all remember the Jackson 5? I mean, you come in Gary, you can't miss them. they everywhere. They painted everywhere. What do you think the Jackson 5, y'all go ahead and laugh. That's what it's worth. What do you think the Jackson 5 believed Joe Jackson loved the most? Music. And what did he make? Little disciples of music. Is there anything wrong with loving other stuff? Not at all. But what did the Jacksons need more than music? What did they need to be uno numeral in their life? Music can't sustain you. Music can't keep you. Music is not there when life is falling apart. Music can't sustain you when the bottom drops. What your children need is they need to know that they can call on a God who is living when all hell is breaking loose. When the bottom drops out, when you don't know where you're going, when the GPS can't direct you, you need to know God. You better know how to pray to him. You better know how to call on his name. Oh, you better know how to call on the name of Jesus. Oh, there's some moments coming in your life that you're going to need to know him. And if you don't know how to call on his name, oh, if you don't know how to call his name in troubles and time of need when things that you thought people that you thought that would have your back when they fall out on you when the job that you thought would sustain you fall out on you when your best friend betrays you when your marriage goes wrong you better know how to call on his name I wish I had some saints in the room that knew how to call on his name I know a name that's sweeter than any name and his name is Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the living water. He's the bread of life and son and daughter. I want you to know how to call on his name. Anybody ever called on his name late in the midnight hour like Paul and Silas, they got up, they were in shackles, but by the time they got done praising his name, the jail had broke open, the chains had fallen off, praise started breaking out, and the centurion soldier was getting ready to kill himself, and Paul and Silas preached the gospel to him, and he came to a saving knowledge, you know what they told him, you better call on his name, friends, do your children know how to call on his name? make no bones about it. Children have passion. They do. If anybody showed their passion, it's children. And I'm getting ready to close. Children have desires. Children have passion. I learned this in the news this week. Y'all remember that, that little toy vending machine with that claw that comes down? It's a rip-off. Can't never catch nothing, could he? Can't catch nothing to save his life. But it comes down. You put the coin in there. It comes down, and it, and it kind of picks up the thing like that. And then it moves over, and it drops it. Parents were out eating, and they were with their son. And all of a sudden, their son disappears. Y'all ain't going to believe this. The little boy seen an opening in the claw vending machine something. He runs up in the machine and he gets stuck trying to get the toy because he was passionate about getting the toy, that it didn't matter what the obstacles were, he was going to get. To that story, friends. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is that you gotta plan a passion down in your kids that no obstacle, no circumstance is gonna stop them from getting to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care what they say, I don't care what they think about me. I gotta get to God. I gotta know him. I gotta know him for who he is. I can't live off my parents' faith. I gotta have my own faith. Well, let me help you out real fast because if that didn't get you to shout, this ought to get you to shout. Check it out. Let me go back. To to the claw slash vending machine, something what your kids need to see the way that you're going to put a passion inside of them is that they need to see another claw. They need, oh, y'all didn't hear me? They need to see another hand called grace that stepped down into your life and pulled you out of your mess, pulled you out of your junk. And so, when you tell them, Well, mommy and daddy ain't the way that I used to be because the hand of grace came down. Picked me up and took me out of the world and put me on my feet. His hand snatched me out of my mess. It snatched me out of my fornication. It snatched me out of my pornography. It snatched me out of my anger. It snatched me out of my bitterness. When I say, Yo, just stand to your feet. It snatched me out of my greed. It snatched me out. Of, and not only did come down one time, two times, three times, for we serve a God of second chances. He stepped down one more than one time. He's a second chance giving God, and I'm glad although I missed him the first time, the hand came down again, and I moved from him one time, and the hand came down again. And so one day, he gripped my soul and pulled me out of my mess. He pulled me out of my mess. He pulled me out of my lust, that hand of God. That is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you can think of. I wish I had some people in here that knew his hand. Oh, that hand came, came down. It came down in the form of a human hand. Come here, John, help me out. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us, that, that hand, it was the same hand that pulled Peter up from drowning. It was the same hand that took Mary and walked her. It was the same hand that fed the 5,000. It was the same hand that patted Nicodemus on the back and said, Unless you be born again, the same hand. The same hand that reached out to an 18-year-old boy and grabbed me by my heart and turned me around is the same hand that I'm depending on to snatch my children out of the world. It is the same hand. It's not daddy hand. It's not mommy hand. It's not uncle hand. It's not the pastor's hand. Hand, you got to learn the hand of God. The old folks used to say, hold on. To his unchanging hand. Consistent and persistent is the hand of God. And if we lean on him as a church, if we lean on him as a family, our babies are going to see the glory of God like they never seen it ever before. Hold on to his hand. Well, speaking of hands, oftentimes we use our hands to symbol praying. And it's one thing to clap about. It's one thing to shout about it, it's another thing to actually do it. Parents, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to pray with your children. Believe it or not, they're in the back, and they're coming to you. And I want you to take just a few minutes to pray with them. If you don't have children in the room, I want you to be praying for those who have children. God will give them grace to raise them in the way of the Lord got teenagers in the room pray with your teenagers maybe this may be a time of confession and repentance for you but don't let this moment pass you by